Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the four-day pause in the Gaza war, after which the killing and destruction could go on for months, with over two million trapped in an increasingly smaller space as a war rages around them. Joining us to assess whether the term genocide applies to the fate of Palestinians trapped in Gaza is Raz Siegel, a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and endowed professor in the study of modern genocide at Stockton University in New Jersey. We'll discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times, Here's What the Mass Violence in Gaza Looks Like to a Scholar of Genocide. Then, following Speaker Mike Johnson's pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago, where he kissed the ring of the former president he wholeheartedly supports, who he says had, quote, a phenomenal first term, we will speak with Christian Cobes de May, a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century and Religion and Politics, among other publications, and her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Then, as consumers gear up to storm the stores on the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, we will speak with an activist who preaches against consumerism and shopping, William Tallon, who is known in the earth justice community as the Reverend Billy, the pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City, whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall, and at jails, pipelines, and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies, and across five continents. He conducts a weekly service Sundays at the Earth Church housed in a converted bank in the East Village, and performs at Manhattan's Public Theatre in Joe's Pub this coming Sunday. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Raz Siegel, who's a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and the endowed professor in the study of modern genocide at Stockton University in New Jersey. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Here's What the Mass Violence in Gaza Looks Like to a Scholar of Genocide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Raz Siegel. Hi, thank you, uh, Ian. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you, Razan. Obviously, this pause in the war in Gaza in exchange for the release of 50 hostages, mostly women and children, foreign nationals, uh, in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners uh, is a welcome thing. But the war will resume after that. And Prime Minister Netanyahu on television speaking to the Israeli nation on Tuesday night was quite firm in saying that the war will go on for a, a long time. So what do you interpret from that? Well, how, how long is a long time? I, you know, I can't really uh, comment on what's in uh, <clears throat> Netanyahu's head in terms of how uh, he sees Israel's attack on Gaza continuing. Um, after this uh, pause and release of the hostages and uh, Palestinians imprisoned uh, in Israel. But we can perhaps think about this in view of what Israel has already done in Gaza so far, right? And Israel so far has carried out uh, what it said it will do after 7th of October and uh, has left most of Gaza in ruins, 
right? Um, it has killed uh, more than 13,000 Palestinians so far, um, and there are thousands and thousands buried uh, under the rubble, tens of thousands of people wounded. There's uh, more than a million and a half people forcibly displaced, primarily um, Palestinians from the northern part of Gaza who have fled uh, to the southern part as a result of uh, Israel's uh, unquote evacuation order uh, early on in the attack. Uh, and all the while, while Israel continues uh, to bomb um, also in the also in the southern part uh, of Gaza, uh, where allegedly it was supposed to be uh, safe for Palestinians to, to flee, because of course there's no safe place uh, in Gaza. Of course, we have the forced displacement and the killings and the carpet bombings um, all take place within a context of quote-unquote total siege. You have Gallant's total siege proclamation from 9th of October, so shutting down the water, the food, the fuel, the medical supplies, um, which has now created in Gaza, uh, well, we know that in many ways food for many, many people in Gaza uh, has run out, basically. So Palestinians are facing now an acute uh, uh, crisis of food insecurity and actually starvation. Um, we know that Palestinians are surviving on, on average on three liters of water a day per person, whereas the World Health Organization's you know, minimum recommendation is 100 liters of water a day. We know that overcrowding in the South uh, has created now conditions for the outbreak of infectious diseases. Um, and, and again, all along with uh, uh, bombings, with unbelievable destruction, more than half of all the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed Significant infrastructure has been destroyed. Agricultural fields have been bombed, right? Uh, um, so if, if to judge from what Israel has done so far, right, um, the goal of the attack, indeed, uh, is to destroy Gaza. And there is significant risk and danger that that's what Israel plans to continue doing after this uh, pause in fighting. But the two million civilians who are trapped in an increasingly smaller space as the war rages around them, they're in increasing jeopardy, are they not? Even if they're not targeted. Absolutely. And again, I, I think that, you know, I don't think that they're not targeted. I think that Israel has dropped over Gaza now more than 20,000 tons of explosives since 7th of October used white phosphorus bombs as documented by Human Rights Watch. The levels of destruction and violence that we're seeing now are such that any claim that Israel is targeting only Hamas militants or Hamas military installations um, is simply untenable, right? And we've actually also seen it in the uh, a crude violation of international law and the invasion of the Shifa hospital where Israel hasn't provided any evidence uh, for any kind of Hamas, uh, uh, you know, headquarters uh, under the hospital. Um, so I don't, I don't think that, uh, I think that uh, Palestinians in Gaza are targeted in the language of the UN Genocide Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from December 1948, as such, quote, right? Israel intends, as Many Israeli leaders and members of the war cabinet and senior army officers has, have said after 7th of October, right, um, expressing themselves actually directly and clearly uh, their intent to destroy Palestinians as such and Gaza as a whole. And so I think that the Palestinians in Gaza now 2.3 million Palestinians uh, in Gaza are in grave danger. But does what's happening then comport with the UN uh, definition of genocide? Well, 
the UN definition of genocide. I mean, I you know I have to say by the way that uh, well we can talk about this more you know uh, in terms of the debates around whether Israel's attack constitutes genocide or not in terms of accountability, which is very significant uh, um, because, you know, there is no hierarchy in international law actually between crimes, contrary to perhaps popular ideas. It's not that genocide is actually worse than war crimes or crimes against humanity. Um, but the convention um, requires two main things, the intention, right? Intent to destroy, um, in the language of the convention, intent to destroy a group, national, racial, religious, uh, uh, ethnic, uh, as such, right? So that as such means that members of the group need to be targeted as members of the group and not just as individuals. And, um, and we've seen these, you know, we've seen Israel, as I said, people with command authority. So state leaders, members of the war cabinet, like Israel Defense Minister uh, Yoav Gallant, and senior army officers, including army spokesperson Daniel Hagari, who early on um, you know, said quite directly that the goal of the attack is destruction, actually, and not accuracy, right, uh, for example. But we've seen, you know, Israeli President Herzog uh, describe all the Palestinians in Gaza as basically responsible for the Hamas attack on 7th of October, so as legitimate enemy uh, targets. We've seen uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, who early on promised to turn Gaza into rubble, quote-unquote, right, which Israel has indeed carried out, but also on 29th of October, as Israel's ground invasion began, he invoked the biblical Amalek story, right, which is a story about total destruction, and then also invoked it again in a special letter to soldiers and officers in the Israeli army, right? And I think it's also important to mention that the Genocide Convention has a so intent to destroy and the dynamics of violence, which will I get, I'll get to, you know, reiterate some of what I just said. So the intent and the dynamics, that's Article 2 of the Convention. There's also a crime of incitement in Article 3. And Israeli media today and the public sphere and public spaces are awash with annihilatory language, right? Uh, journalists since 7th of October have been... Uh, writing on social media, saying TV anchors on TV, uh, uh, writing the newspapers, uh, calling to, quote, flatten Gaza, to destroy Gaza, calling for, quote, a million bodies, so on and so forth. That's, you know, the Rwanda genocide, if to take that historical case after the genocide, the post-genocide trials included a media case where three journalists were tried for incitement that would, that happened during the genocide itself. We now have many cases of Israeli journalists uh, uh, inciting for genocide. And I mentioned this in the frame of the discussion on intent, because I think that we need to understand intent also in the, in the, in the context of what's going on. So obviously the context of the dynamics of violence, which I said, you know, the dropping of so much explosives on Gaza, the use of white force force bombs, the total siege proclamation, the forced displacement uh, uh, um, that we've seen. We also have, you know, we, we also have more and more indication, by the way, that Israel is targeting specific groups in Gaza. That is, for example, human rights uh, activists, medical personnel, journalists, very clearly targeting journalists. And we know that the targeting of specific groups like this, right, also gives us indication about genocidal dynamics. But the intent and the dynamics of violence here should also be understood in the context of a society where expressing annihilatory, destructive, dehumanizing 
language has become normal, right? And it's quite shocking in the last several weeks, anyone who follows Hebrew language sources is exposed to really shocking calls for genocide, right? For destruction. Um, and, uh, and we see this also, there is more and more now um, indications, and it's mostly in Hebrew language uh, media, um, reports of, of soldiers and officers in, in, in Gaza or also outside of Gaza, but it, from the army, right? And especially those right in Gaza now, um, how they're expressed, how they're understanding what they're doing in Gaza, right? Um, uh, why they're there, right? Uh, talking, for example, explicitly about expulsions, right? Mass expulsions, talking about the quote-unquote return to Gaza and the need to, quote, settle Gaza by Jews, right? Um, so we, we have more and more indications that soldiers and officers in the Israeli army now in Gaza uh, are actually understanding the general uh, media and political atmosphere in Israel in the way that the political leadership and the military leadership right, are intending it, that is to destroy Gaza and to target Palestinians in Gaza as such. Well, Raz, I'm, I'm afraid we've only got a minute left here, and I just wanted to quickly ask you about the Biden administration's position on genocide. They have described what the Russians are doing to Ukraine as genocide, but they have been silent on Gaza, have they not? Yeah, I mean, we know that in April uh, 2022, Biden indeed said that um, uh, he sees it was his position, not the position of the U.S. government. But he said that uh, he thinks that it was that it's genocide, the Russian attack on Ukraine. And, you know, I think that without at all minimizing Russia's attack on Ukraine, uh, and I think it is a genocidal attack on Ukraine, um, I think that we need to understand that in relative numbers, um, what we what we're seeing, so Israel has killed actually in total numbers more Palestinians in Gaza now in seven weeks than the Russian attack on Ukraine has kill, have killed uh, uh, in less than uh, a bit less than two years, according to official UN figures. But even if we take the higher figures of the Russian, uh, the the uh, number of Ukrainians that the Russians have killed in less than two years, and putting it in the tens of thousands, right? Uh, we need to understand that in relative terms, if we take the numbers in Gaza now, that means that in Ukraine, we would have about 300,000 people that the Russian invasion would have killed, right? If we would have the kind of levels of violence that we see now in Gaza. And of course, Gaza today looks worse than Ukrainian cities under Russian bombings and invasion. Uh, and the, the discourse in Israel, the annihilatory discourse in Israel, right, is, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we can say worse. I mean, it's definitely similar to the kind of annihilatory and genocidal discourse that we've seen in Russian media, right, in the frame of. So, so yes, I do think that the, we see a discrepancy here in terms of the uh, U.S. government's approach. And, of course, that's why we had a lawsuit uh, a week and a half ago by the Center for Constitutional Rights against U.S. President Biden and uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin for complicity with Israel genocide and calling on them to stop actually transferring arms and providing diplomatic cover to Israel and actually upholding their legal obligation under the Genocide Convention, Article 1, uh, um, to intervene to stop genocide, but certainly not to support a state conducting uh, genocide. So we definitely have a very different approach here of the U.S. government uh, uh, from its approach towards Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Well, Raz Siegel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Raz Siegel, who's a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and an endowed professor in the study of modern genocide at Stockton University in New Jersey. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times. Here's what the mass violence in Gaza looks like to a scholar of genocide. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Mike Johnson's pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago, where he kissed the ring of the former president he wholeheartedly supports who he says had a phenomenal first term. It could be anywhere, most likely. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian Kobes dumay who is a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for The Washington Post, uh, Christianity Today, Christian Century, Religion and Politics, among other publications. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christian Kobes dumay Thanks for having me. Good to talk with you. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, and, and of course, with uh, Thanksgiving coming up, which is, uh, I think, the nicest holiday that we have here in the United States, given that it's not commercial and it's about family and fellowship. And you're on your way for Thanksgiving, and I'll be on my way as soon as, <laughs> as we finish this interview. Yes. <laughs> but not to spoil the mood, uh, Kristen, last <laughs> night, Monday night, uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson met with former President uh, Donald Trump down at Mar-a-Lago, and it sort of feels a bit like kissing the ring, which happened uh, with Speaker McCarthy, who went down there after criticizing Trump and then came back praising him. So what did you make of that, that little pilgrimage? I mean, I, I think it's telling. I think that it demonstrates what we had already um, had plenty of evidence that um, we should expect a kind of alliance between Speaker Johnson and Donald Trump should Trump be reelected. I think that they have seen that their interests are aligned uh, in the past, and uh, it's not surprising that we would see that kind of um, solidified in some ways at this point, especially with some of the difficulties the Speaker has faced um, with his own party um, in his new role as as Speaker. So... There is also an expose, if you will, or an exploration of his record that CNN have done. And it's pretty extraordinary the extent to which he really is, you know, an exemplar of what you wrote about in Jesus and John Wayne. He has apparently, he has a Christian nationalist flag outside of the Speaker's office now. And we could go through what the... CNN have revealed, but it's pretty alarming. So is it possible that people didn't realize that they were electing a theocrat when they made him House Speaker? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard for me to say exactly what his fellow Republicans knew about him or thought they knew about him uh, when they selected him as Speaker. Uh, but Mike Johnson is deeply embedded in the Christian right. It, it's hard to envision a, um, a, a congressman uh, more embedded, frankly. And he goes back uh, decades in these circles. And it really, the more I learned about him, and the more stunning it was, uh, if you if you go back in to the the um, 1990s already, and um, the circles that he moved in, the the people who he's who he's talked about as being extremely influential in his political and religious formation, people like David Barton, for example. Right? These are um, familiar names to very conservative evangelicals. and But the ideas that he embraced in these spaces, ideas like the myth of the separation of church and state, the idea that America is and ought to be uh, a Christian nation, that um, our law should be based on, um, really on God's law. All of these things are quite common in the spaces that he has been running in, um, and now to see him elevated to this position of power, and then particularly uh, in, in a kind of partnership, or um, once again, aspirational partnership with uh, Donald Trump, in terms of election denial, and uh, a lot of uh, signs of um, of concern for those at least who care about democracy. I think that all of this is, um, is uh, you know, certainly gives one pause at this particular moment in our um, political history. But Donald Trump is hardly an ex- exemplar of Christian values. Um, no. So how does this pious man reconcile the fact that he's 
sitting down with a heathen? You know, I think that uh, there is a very kind of utilitarian sense here. And within spaces on the right, there has long been the argument that uh, Donald Trump, you know, he may not he may not reflect uh, what we think of as Christian values and his lifestyle, but he can still be God's instrument. God can still use him. He can be anointed for a particular purpose. And they understand that purpose to be one that is aligned with their own, to protect their version of Christianity and to uh, really seize power in a way that promotes their interests. And so they can see him, even in his um, crassness, even in his ruthlessness, uh, certainly in his unconventional, unconventional style of politics, that actually works just fine. In fact, it in some ways testifies even further to the fact that God has done something almost uh, you know, miraculous here by placing this particular man in this position of power at this particular moment. Well, just last week, uh, Mike Johnson said that he endorsed Trump wholeheartedly and that he was one of the closest allies that President Trump has in Congress and that the former president had, quote, a phenomenal first term. And obviously, a lot of people would argue with that. Yeah. You know, I imagine there he was signaling to uh, the right flank of the Republican Party, uh, some of his fellow Congress uh, representatives in, in Congress. and uh, But also, you know, I think we should take that seriously, that um, they have found common cause and will continue to find common cause in advancing their agenda. So we know that he's, he and his wife seem to be obsessed with homosexuality, but the CNN investigation into his previous statements and, and appearances on, on media uh, have unearthed some interview clips that are pretty alarming, In one in which uh, Mike Johnson described abortion as an American holocaust, and another in which he said that he agreed with Justice Clarence Thomas's opinion overturning uh, Roe v. Wade, in which Thomas argued that the Supreme Court should revisit past rulings establishing gay and contraceptive rights, which alarmed a lot of people and seemed to be way out of the mainstream. In other words, you're not just banning abortion, but you're banning contraception, overturning Ogerfell, the the gay ruling, etc. So doesn't that put Mike Johnson in a pretty radical camp? I, I think you could certainly argue that it does. I think that if you look at his career, certainly opposing gay rights has been a constant. Uh, if you go back and look at his work with um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, this um, uh, you know really his, his much of his early career was that on defending religious liberty, but also advancing um, causes such as um, anti-LGBTQ legislation and um, and kind of defining religious liberty in those terms. And so um, I, I know he's, he's kind of played it and declined to talk specifically on that since um, he has um, uh, gained this new position of leadership. But I, um, it, it would be shocking to me as somebody who has looked at his longer history to... Um, expect any any sort of change there, right? That he has an agenda, and certainly he comes out of spaces that understand homosexuality not just to be a sin uh, and, and something that they personally wouldn't choose, but a, really an abomination. And uh, the way they understand it is this is not just an individual choice, but he, he comes out of a tradition that sees America as God's special nation, and that for America to secure God's blessing, the, the nation as a whole must obey, must fall into line with God's commands. And homosexuality, as he sees it, is against God's law, against that order. And so uh, it would be consistent to expect him to want to criminalize or abolish, or um, you know, I'm not quite sure how he would hope to achieve that, but certainly not have it be kind of state sanctioned 
in the way that it now is and um, in terms of the Obergefell decision and, um, and, and basic rights. So I think that is something to, um, you know, to take him seriously and, and look at his record on that. And when it comes to abortion as well, he certainly comes out of a tradition that sees abortion as murder and sees abortion as a great evil um, that is plaguing this country. And that, too, would need to be um, uh, you know, made illegal, it would need to, need to be stopped in order that the country once again aligns itself with, with God's, God's law and can then fulfill its destiny and secure God's blessing. Well, apparently on the day uh, that the Supreme Court uh, issued its ruling in Roe v. Wade overturning it, Johnson was absolutely thrilled and yeah. that he suggested that the, court, the Supreme Court should go even further, which we've talked about, which in concurrence with Justice Thomas's suggestion that they should overturn Griswold, which is contraception, mm-hmm. and Obergefell, which is gay marriage, etc., Mm-hmm. And to quote what he said, there has been some really bad laws made. They've made a mess of our jurisprudence in this country for the past several decades, and maybe some of that needs to be cleaned up. And what Justice Thomas is calling for is not radical. In fact, it's the opposite of that. So do you know what he means by that, uh, Kristen? Oh, uh, you know, the last uh, decades, I'm... Um assuming he's referring to since the war in court. And, uh, you know, yes, I think there is a sense that the country has gone off the rails, that the country took a, you know, a turn back in the, in the 60s, and that kind of restoring the moral foundations, restoring the Christian foundations of the country, you need to go back to where, where that turn was made and set it on a correct course. And so in terms of, uh, of what this means for um, um, different court cases, uh, different judicial decisions, um, he, he would want to go back and undo much of uh, kind of recent decades of court decisions and, and, and chart a new course. Um, now, on the issue of something like you know, Griswold v. Connecticut, v. Connecticut the, the uh, contraceptive um, case and, and privacy and so forth, there, um, those views of opposition to birth control are, as I've understood it and observed, somewhat less common in uh, conservative Christian spaces than opposition to abortion, for example. Um, but certainly there is an element within the Christian right that also is opposed to contraception and sees that also as something that should be abolished. Again, you're not going to have quite the same numbers, the same popularity, but the fact that he is signaling in that direction, again, should be cause for, um, uh, for concern for those who, who think that um, that's not the direction the country should go in. So just in the last couple of minutes, though, uh, Kristen, um, the Supreme Court itself, of course, has been stacked with far-right judges, all hand-picked by Leonard Leo, and they, they're extremely conservative Catholics. Many a Roper's Day, as much as you can even... Well, we certainly know that uh, Leo, Leonard Leo's Roper's Day, even though it's a secretive organization and nobody admits that they're in the organization, but it's a very far-right form of Catholicism, which would suggest to anybody, I should think, that the Supreme Court does not represent the broad uh, spectrum of religion in this country, let alone the spectrum of religion within the Catholic faith itself. So I find that extremely troubling. But having the third most powerful politician in the country coming from a safe seat down in Louisiana so he, he doesn't have to deal with the opposition in his constituency, and of course it's right there in the oil and gas belt, so he's a big champion of fossil fuel and, and a denier of climate change. But in general, he feels to me like he's also an example of what I've suggested about the Supreme Court, is we need our leaders to know about all of America and how people think in this diverse, multicultural country, let alone living in somebody that's living in a, in a very narrow Christian fundamentalist bubble. Does that trouble you? It does. 
it does. Uh, you know, and, and historically, we've looked to the Constitution uh, to guarantee the rights of all Americans, regardless of religious faith. That's one of the uh, defining features of our Constitution, of our, our history. Um, and so when you see figures like Mike Johnson, who interpret the Constitution in a way that arguably privileges a particular um, strand of the Christian faith, right? He's, he's, although he'll say he's you know, pro-Christian or um, uh, you know, advancing Christian interests, this is, this is a very particular kind of Christianity, right? A very conservative interpretation of it. And, um, and he understands that the Constitution really um, privileges that because he understands that, that God, you know, was behind the found, founding of this country. Uh, you know, some, some will go so far even as to say, I don't believe he personally has said this, but, you know, in, in these spaces that God inspired the founders, God inspired the founders to write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so if you believe that, then you believe that the... the um, the Constitution itself is built on a Christian foundation, and he certainly does believe that and suggest that. That means every when you interpret the Constitution around any particular issue, it must be interpreted in alignment with how he understands God's laws. And this is where you can see that it is then not equally applied to all Americans, which arguably, as most historians would would say, um, again, the, the brilliance of the Constitution was that it was it was crafted to not favor particular religious traditions. It was designed in a way that protected a pluralistic society, that protected the rights of all Americans, and a democratic system that allows citizens, all citizens, to uh, have a say in, in, in shaping this government, not one that allows a particular group uh, to um, uh, to form the government and to enforce the laws over and against the rest of the citizens. So I think it is something that is cause for concern in and of itself, and then particularly so uh, in in alliance with a figure like Donald Trump, who has also um, signaled many times over that he um, is not committed to our democratic norms and institutions. Well, Chris and Kobus Demay, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. It was good to talk with you. And again, I've been speaking with Kristen Kobus Demay, who's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She has written for the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We're going to take a brief station break, and as consumers gear up to storm the stores on the day after Thanksgiving Black Friday, we will speak with an activist who preaches against consumerism and shopping. Southern man, better keep going. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Taylor, who is known in the earth justice community as the Reverend Billy, the pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall, and at jails, pipelines, and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies, and across five continents. He conducts a weekly service Sundays at the Earth Church, housed in a converted bank in the East Village, and performs at Manhattan's Public Theatre in Joe's Pub this coming Sunday. Welcome to Background Briefing, the Reverend Billy. Thank you for having me, Ian. Take care. You too, and... Uh, Take care. I don't know why I said that. Take care. I, well, I think I'm threatening you. I'm not sure. Well, I, I would recommend that you take care on the day after Thanksgiving, this coming Friday, uh, known as Black Friday, because you're going to be 
demonstrating, performing, and some of those ardent shoppers uh, might think that you're getting in the way of America's favorite pastime, which is consumerism. Yes, well, Times Square, I mean, we started the the Church of Stop Shopping project there back in around around 9-11, and uh, back when there were characters there and Giuliani was mayor, and opposing overconsumption in Times Square is not a new thing here. We've been doing that for two decades. So what are you going to be doing on Friday? Just describe your plans if, if you're not giving away too much. Well, no, we'll just be open about it. They read our emails and so forth anyway. On the uptown end of Times Square, uh, where the tourists stand in line for their discount tickets, there's uh, some bleachers there and uh, a, a sculpture of a World War I humanitarian named Father Duffy. And uh, that's where we gather at noon on Friday, Black Friday, which we years ago we used to try to convert it into a Buy Nothing Day, but I think we failed, Ian. <laughs> yeah, well. We kept, they kept, the consumer confidence is up, well, they say. Right. Oh, that's, yes, we're, we're celebrating the uh, the new economy. I know, the booming economy. So, Your Grace, you have spent, how many times have you been arrested? Because, you know, as you say, singing while trespassing is what you and the Church of Stop Shopping do. But um, Well, the, it, the, uh, the singing tends to slow the police down. They may still, they may still handcuff us eventually, but the Stop Shopping Choir has some, well, we're in New York City, so out-of-work singers, you could get some very talented people who are against overconsumption, who are pulling for the earth, who, who want, who want um, a physical environment that the children can live in. And so we have some, we have some good singers. We have a, a Amber Gray, a, a Tony nominee, Gina Sigaroa won a, won a Grammy some time ago for writing a song with D'Angelo called Real Love. And we've all won Obies. We're, we're, uh, so the police, they kind of like slow down, partly because they have six-part harmonies coming at them. You know? <laughs> but it so, is, so stop you, shopping! You know, it, the, the message is radical, and it you know, gets in the way. But uh, hopefully some of the consumers themselves slow down as well. Right, but your demonstrations in, in the lobbies of J.P. Morgan Chase and other big corporations, that's usually, as far as I know, about trying to stop them from investing in fossil fuels, etc. And, and in doing so, you are going against capitalism. And that normally provokes a pretty severe response from law enformant. Heavens forbid that yeah, so we've been, uh, we've been uh, in Wall Street's uh, activities. Pardon? We've been in Chase Bank since 2007, um, just because they've been the number one uh, financier of CO2, fluorinated gases, methane. The greenhouse gases come from their projects all over the world uh, at a rate that they're out there by themselves. Jay Diamond is really a climate climate criminal. We were thinking of, of uh, making a 10 most wanted, um, you know, you can, just, you can just take the CEOs of these companies, Citibank, Exxon, Chevron, you can just take, take the pictures, the headshots of the CEOs, and you can, if you put them in a row in a particular way, it looks just like the, <laughs> the, uh, the FBI 10 most wanted. And we're, we're, uh, we're going to have that for our kind of our window dressing at, at the uh, high noon when we gather at the uptown end of Times Square on Friday. Uh, there is a problem, obviously, with um, criminalizing, cr the, the, you know, having, having, a, having an attitude that, well, we have to save ourselves from these people that are devoted to violence. And, and somehow or other, we're stuck in mid-stride, we, we, we can't put the cuffs on these people. They're too rich. 
you know, uh, Jamie Dimon makes a hundred thousand dollars a day. I mean, these people are in another world. Um, I guess you can't, we, we, in the United States, we cannot, you know, Bernie Madoff is the exception that proves the rule, but we really have to have something besides the environmental protection agency going up against, um, these, you know, they put $4.6 trillion into fossil fuel projects these fossil banks, we call them fossil banks, since the Paris Climate Agreement. In the last seven years, they put $4.6 trillion. So they've just, they, they, didn't, they didn't stop at all or even slow down. Right. They, just, they just, when when the agreement was made with 190 signers and pledges, and we're going we're gonna to try to keep it, keep the, the, the general temperature under 1.5 Celsius, um, uh, the nation states were not able to obviously control their own banks. So we have to do something else. And we, we thought, well, let's, let's, let's try to introduce a mental shift here where you, where you, where you look at a guy in a $3,000 suit getting out of a limousine and you can imagine that that is, he might be dressed well, but so was Al Capone. Amen. Well, well, somebody, there's somebody on uh, Radio Land chuckle when I just said that. <laughs> well, Your Eminence, I'm doing the best I can here, but tell me, what do you make of the the latest uh, COP gathering on climate change? Isn't that happening in one of these oil-rich Gulf states? Well, you know, I'm here in New York City, and one of our prominent uh, members of the Church of Stop Shopping is a uh, sound man at the general assembly in uh, the United Nations. And he sees general secretary Guterres a lot. And I've been trying to get him to like, ask why are we having these international climate conferences in Petro States in the middle of deserts? And you can't get there. If you're a climate defender like myself, you can't get there. The last time there was a, um, um, a cop that you could get to was Glasgow, Scotland. And even that was a hard for a lot of people in, in the global South, but we got there with the, with the 25 singers and, and uh, led parades and had shows at the Glasgow center for the arts. And then, uh, you know, it's, it was a sad thing because we, we just, we had to watch up close how overwhelmed earth defenders are by the corporations and the nation states that are their clients. But really, really there was, there was just no chance. I, I don't know what, what at this point, it's hard to visualize what we will do. We have to change our tactics to defend the earth. It's just getting worse and worse and worse right now. The wars are covering up what's going on with the, the, the earth's, the Earth's superstorms and wildfires have just accelerated. There's no, um, we're in the sixth extinction. We're we're in serious shape here, and and the consumers are just consuming. You know that's the that's our basic objection to to shopping is that it's a hypnotic event that it slows people down, and they're unable to consider the safety of their families. And these 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 wars are prolifer proliferating around the world. The economies are impossible and people are forced out of their homes looking for another country to live in. There's over 100 million people now walking towards a dream that might be across a militarized border. I mean, there's just things going on right now. A lot of, a lot of the, the, the migration is a result of climate change. So it's certain, that's certainly true in Central America where, where you can't farm anymore. You can't, you can't guess at where the seasons are, uh, you know, you can't, you don't know when to harvest and when to plant seeds. So a lot of those folks pressuring at the Mexican border, we're, we've we've absorbed a lot of those folks. I I, I hate that word absorbed. That doesn't sound right. We we welcome them <laughs> at the at the Earth Church in the East Village. We we have our doors open, and then we go into synagogues and churches where they're hiding families that ice is trying to get at and sing for them and 
bring them food and clothing. We have a we have a serious uh, we have a serious moment here this Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is sort of the last the last um, holiday that um, comes to us and has a certain strength to it. A certain a certain moral tenor exists in it. It's it it it's built into the name. It suggests a gift economy. It suggests a direction to go in with how we treat each other in our neighborhoods and our families. Well, it's it is it is a family day. It's a day for family and fellowship. It's a it's the nicest uh, I think American holiday. It's not commercial. Hallmark hasn't taken it over. And the weird part, though, Your Grace, is that <laughs> it's the very next day is an orgy of consumerism. Black Friday. How did that happen? Well, public space in New York City, public space with, where history has taken place and where the people have had their uprisings and their special events like Union Square, like Astor Place, they are surrounded by corporations. And, and in terms of time, it used to be that we'd get up before dawn, the Stop Shop and Choir would go to the Golden door in Herald Square at Macy's and try to push back the thousands of thousands of consumers that were going to bust that door and get their discount. And after after Jim Atai Dunmore uh, was trampled in, when was that? 2007? I, I don't remember the right year. He was a, a temp worker who was helping on the morning of the Black Friday and uh, he was trying to get a, a pregnant woman out of the way because people were running in so fast. And um, big man, six five, he he was killed by rampaging rampaging consumers. And we we sort of stopped our door busting on Friday morning. Now now we're just getting together at Times Square at noon um, with our ten most wanted polluters sign kind of another approach i don't i don't even know if they have the door busting anymore i think that amazon took over that whole thing but yes black friday is a fact and consumer confidence is up and the you know the uh, right-wing press is celebrating the the arrival the sustenance of this manic buying um the new york times and so forth they're like happy about it um that's what drives our economy. Ultimately, we, we can't have a growth economy. Ultimately, we have to have a gift economy, a circular economy, a, a, an economy that has a regard for the earth and sustains itself with the earth. Um, that seems like a long way away. It seems like I'm just uh, reciting a pipe dream right now. But Well, but aren't, this, you, fi aren't this, you finding that... Go ahead. Aren't you, but aren't you finding the younger generation who are inheriting this earth that the older generation have screwed up for them, aren't they more conscious and aware of the challenges ahead? And because they're going to have to live in this planet. I mean, how much is Greta Thunberg an example of the generation? Are you finding it? You sound a little discouraged, but I've heard from other people suggesting that one should be a little bit encouraged by the younger generation's wokeness. Well, you're absolutely right. The the uh, youth coming up are are angrier and certainly have no patience for the upper middle class NGOs, big green. Um, you know where you have a CEO of a nonprofit. That makes a million dollars a year and all that. They, they, they are. Uh, that's why we have so many young people in the the Stop Shop Inquirer. They, they are. They have a whole new. And yes, Greta Thunberg really is. Um. Really is the 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 leader. I don't think she wants to be called that, but she she's very much their spokesperson. And yes, I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful that they they can turn this thing around, 
Um, the older generations are getting discouraged, like you heard in my voice right now. Well, Your Eminence, uh, let's end on a more uplifting note. I'm already okay. crying. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'll be depressed for days after this, after this phone call, Ian. Ian, I, well, I, well, well, what, what are you going to do to cheer us up? Well, that's your job. You know, this oh, that's is, my job. Yes, this is a... Well, we we're have... We're trying to discourage people from shopping on uh, Friday and raise the consciousness of Americans. You want, you want so, just a, a, little, a little blessing for me, a little goodbye blessing here? Well, some kind of a blessing, but I mean, in, sure. you know, people are per perfectly entitled to shop, but I think it's also worth realizing that consumerism itself is unsustainable in terms of this planet. It's just being stripped bare in order to provide you with an iPhone and every other thing that we desperately need, right? <laughs> well, all right. All right. Uh, here we go. I just want the, the presence of the earth to be here with Ian and myself and with listeners. The earth is alive. The, the native peoples, the earth cultures, always say that, and they're right. The reason we pollute the way we do, the reason we abuse the earth the way we do, and it's never more abused than it is at the holidays with the shopping, um, it's because we believe the earth is, is just background. It's just inert, and it's not. And the... the the monster storms and the, and the wildfires are an expression by a living being. And that expression, we just, we have to, in our activism, we have to try to translate what it means. In my humble opinion, it is, it is saying, the earth is saying, stop eating yourself alive. Look at your consumption. Make, it, make a gift that you can walk to or that you can make, or give the gift in the form of an experience of love. The revolution has a gentle side. We don't have to crawl up the skyscrapers and take those executives by the lapels and shake them. Well, we may have to, but it's also important just to have strong relationships in our neighborhoods and in our in our communities on a smaller scale and just try to help each other be strict don't drive there don't buy that gift that has so much plastic in it look at your gas and oil consumption on a constant basis and be willing to stand up and say that to somebody who's just hopelessly right-wing we have to help each other back out of poisoning our, our beautiful earth. Ursaluya, thanks for talking with me today. Ursaluya to you. Maybe and we'll see some of you Sunday night at, at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater here in New York. Maybe we have some New Yorkers listening. And uh, Friday, Friday noon, Black Friday noon, we'll be in Times Square singing. Well, Reverend Billy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Ursaluya, everybody. And again, I've been speaking with William Taylor, who is known in the Earth Justice community as the Reverend Billy, the pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City, whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall, and at jails, pipelines, and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies, and across five continents. He conducts a weekly service Sundays at the Earth Church housed in a converted bank in the East Village and performs at Manhattan's Public Theatre in Joe's Pub this coming Sunday. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,